0: Welcome to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. Today's guest, former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. This episode was recorded live at the 92nd Street Y in New York City.
1: Thank you, everyone. Thank you for all the great energy in the room. I can't imagine. Do, are, do people think we have anything to talk about? Tonight? <laughs> so Steve and I would like to welcome Preet Bharara, who is the Former former. Former. Yeah. US Attorney General
2: you're all, you're all
1: safe. of the Southern District of New York. And he's a distinguished scholar in residence at NYU Law and the host of the CAFE podcast, Stay Tuned, which I highly recommend everyone should tune into. So we are very excited to welcome Preet to our first live recording of a podcast. Steve and I just launched Words Matter. About a month ago, and we're excited to have our first live podcast here at the 92nd Street Y.
2: Thank you for having us. And thank you for joining us. It's good to be. Congratulations! Oh, Just you. proves that now everyone everyone has a podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> Not all of them are as excellent as yours, but everyone everyone has one.
1: So to start out, okay. Let's start with Donald Trump. Like to call you on your cell phone,
2: <clears throat> right? And how this came
1: about? Let's start with the president-elect, the transition. He asked you to come and meet with him.
2: He did. So some people know the story, but uh, so I expected not to be in office after Donald Trump won because the tradition is that when a new president comes in, particularly one of the opposing party, uh, that all sort of Senate, you know, presidentially appointed, Senate confirmed people in the cabinet and also at the level of U.S. attorney, they leave you know through an orderly process over a period of time. So I began making. Uh, expensive vacation plans Because I thought I'd be going to the, to the private sector um, and, and and made my bucket list And uh, Then I got a phone call from Senator Schumer For whom I used to work That the president-elect had called him And said, do you think people would want to stay? I thought about it and I realized it's the best job I've ever had We had some unfinished business And so then I was asked to meet with the president-elect On the 26th floor of Trump Tower And I went And um, he was late uh, But to entertain me until the president elect came into the room, where Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner. <laughs> were, and, there, were there any card tricks or any, any no special talent? But I did that... observe, I, I realized later that it was interesting that Steve Bannon was wearing only one shirt, <laughs> which is not, not the norm. And we had, you know, we made small talk, and the president elect uh, complimented my office. I hope he would make the same compliments today for various reasons. Uh, and complimented me on how I'd run the office. And, you know, I said something like, I presume that you were asking me to stay for another term because you like the way that we run the office and we're independent and we don't care about politics. And I I made sure I put that on the record, such as it was. And it was a very uneventful meeting, other than the moment where he pushed sort of a a yellow pad of um, Post-its across the desk and asked me for my phone numbers, which I thought was odd for a couple of reasons. One, um, I presume someone had my phone number, because that's how I that's how I got there, and you're married, and I'm yeah, I'm like the president-elect is asking me for my digits, and no one seemed to think that was an odd thing, and so, so I wrote I wrote I wrote call me anytime. I, wrote, no. I put I didn't I didn't say that, for a reason. so I so I put my numbers down. I didn't think anything of it. Then he called me a couple of times, which was weird, and and get your antenna up when just to he was shoot the breeze. Essentially, just to shoot the breeze. I mean, I have a theory on what was going on and having seen the evidence of how he dealt with other people and how he dealt with Jim Comey. I mean, I think he was trying to cultivate a relationship with someone with whom it's kind of inappropriate to cultivate a relationship with. He didn't ask me to do anything that I shouldn't have done. But I was concerned about it. I reported that contact to um, to the head of the transition for the president. Uh, and I thought to myself, well, when he becomes the president, he will be busy and he won't be, you know, calling me up um, on the cell phone, as they say. <laughs> And that, that was on March 9th, you know, a few weeks after he was sworn in as, as the president with all his duties. I get a call and I wasn't there. And so he left, uh, you know, the secretary left a message President Trump would like to call you back. And the funny thing about this is, people say about the president and the relevance to this, They we not have to belabor my little story, um, that he doesn't understand what the protocols are. He doesn't understand what interference is because he's never been in this kind of, in this kind of work. You know, my father is a retired pediatrician Indian immigrant. And he, right away when he heard that the president-elect had been calling me. My father hasn't read the guidance and the guidelines from the Justice Department either. <clears throat> and he's like, I don't like this. <laughs> so. And he literally said, like, I, I hope he does not call you. And then, the man, and then the man calls. And you know what? At that point, we had a conversation. I actually said on the, on the podcast, this whole business about Rod Rosenstein joking depending on which report you believe, about wiring up against the president. I mean, it, maybe it's a joke. He's a he's a sarcastic guy. I know him. And people who are prosecutors make jokes about wiring people up. That's like how we get our thrills, making <laughs> jokes like that. I, I, I basically had like a wiretap joke, and I had a subpoena joke. Those are my two jokes. <laughs> and I, le- I left the, the dad jokes at home. but but, the, but there's an element of truth even in jokes, right? So when the president left a message, and I thought, well, it's rude not to call back, but it might be inappropriate to call back, and what if he says something that he's not supposed to say? We had a discussion, and it was not a joke. Should I record the phone call with the president? And we said to ourselves, well, that's kind of weird. (laughs) That, That seems a bridge too far. I didn't want to have to have been a person who recorded the president, and the best approach we thought was not to return the call at all. And I got the agreement and the acquiescence in that decision from actually, which people don't realize, from the chief of staff to Attorney General Sessions, who said, yeah, we don't know why he's calling. The department is different from other places. It's not the Department of Agriculture or someone in the White House where you call someone up and you want to get a report on something. As we now know, and the reason I feel better about my decision not to call him back, even if that may have meant that that was part of the reason I was asked 22 hours later for my resignation, <laughs> I've, I've never been more proud of anything that I've ever done because he may have said something inappropriate. He may have said... Um, like he said to Jim Comey, could you lay off this person? Or as he said to other people, could you, you know, go after this other person? And that's not how it's supposed to be. The Department of Justice and the people in it are supposed to, when they're enforcing the law and enforcing the principle of equal justice before law, are not supposed to be taking directions on who to prosecute, who not to prosecute, based on the whims of an elected official. That's supposed to be done separately.
1: So when you were fired, this, of course, birthed some conspiracy theories, one of which being... He fired you because you didn't call him back. Do you think that's why?
2: No, I don't know because because you because everyone was asked to leave the next day, and I'm prepared to believe. I'm not. I've never made an accusation with respect to this. I'm, I'm prepared to believe that maybe it had been brewing for a while, and this put him over the edge and said, "Fire everybody." It's also true that President Hannity um, <laughs> was. Uh, oh, did I say that out loud? That, <laughs> that um, the co-president Hannity. I'm sorry. Said on on his show that Thursday night So he called me on March 9th, that was a Thursday On Thursday evening, I believe Hannity said On television you know, This is when they started talking a lot more about the deep state Such as it is And Hannity said fire all the U.S. attorneys And what I really imagine happened Whether it was nefarious or not Is that Steve Miller or somebody Came to a conference table the next morning It's all speculation Let's get rid of all these people without a plan It was not that different from Sort of implementing all sorts of other things that they have done, like getting rid of all the ambassadors, uh, or in a more serious manner, you know, issue um, the travel ban. They, they never thought to you know, contemplate whether or not it applies to people who are green card holders or not, people who are en route back to the United States or not. They come up with sort of a fiat kind of decision, and then they don't have any ability to implement it properly, whether you're talking about you know, separations at the border also. Sometimes the policies are nefarious and bad and done in, in bad faith and with ill will, um, but also incompetently. And depending on your perspective, that's maybe a good thing, uh, because it's harder for evil to be done if you're incompetent. But it also is hard to discern which is which.
0: What's the nature of this moment that
2: we're in in this country? Is the
0: country in a crisis?
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is yeah, the I, I'm not saying it as, as eloquently as, as I've heard you say it. Steve's also been a guest on the podcast. If you start to break it down, you can convince yourself that any particular thing is sort of not so bad, right? So so what I say when I want to be optimistic and give people hope, but not too much hope, is that if you, if you look at the institutions of democracy, a lot of them are holding up pretty well. So, for example, the press. So what you have is you have the disparagement of the press. You have a president saying the press is the enemy of the people. That's terrible, and he calls out particular people by name, and there's a suggestion that violence against members of the press are, are, are all right, and there's a subversion of what is true and what is not true, so people like you might expect in in the the prior Soviet Union, and to some extent in Russia. You just sort of destroy what truth is, and you make people uncertain about what they can trust and what they can't trust. All that's bad. But when the president says things about changing the libel laws, he can't do that. It's not gonna happen. When he says things about taking the licenses away from newspapers or from radio stations or TV stations, I really don't believe that that, that, we're we're not on the precipice of that. He can't do that, that's rhetoric. So, and, and on the other side of the token, based on the work that you and others do, you know, the press is very vibrant and is doing scoop after scoop after scoop and is discovering a lot of things that prosecutors haven't been able to discover and ferreting out all sorts of corrupt. So the press is it's attacked and it's under siege and it's you know, maybe more under siege by the economic model of being in the print world than, than other things, but it's, I think it's okay. The courts, yeah, they're being attacked. He attacks people by name, but you know, there's, a, there's something to be said for the structure of the Constitution that you know these, these folks a few hundred years ago thought of, which is you, you get life tenure. And there's an argument to be made that life tenure is bad because people stay on the, on the bench too long. But the fact that you have life tenure was intended to insulate the court and members of the bench in and the, and the federal system from this kind of thing. So if you're a judge and you get on the wrong side uh, as I like to say, if you're a judge you get on the wrong side of the, the President of the United States he calls you out on Twitter. If you're a U.S. attorney who gets on the wrong side then you get a podcast. So there's a... There's a <laughs> because U.S. attorneys didn't have life tenure. And then, you know, Congress is a mixed bag, depending on what's going on. Um, where I think the threat is, uh, fr- from my perspective, my parochial thing that I care about, being in law enforcement, is the, is the independence of the law enforcement function, the independence of the FBI, the independence of the United States attorneys, the independence of people who pursue civil rights investigations and all sorts of other things, and a lack of faith and trust that those folks are doing their jobs in the way that we have been trained to do them. Because there's actually not a law unless you can put together a strong enough case. It's very difficult to do, although some people think it's been made, and want it to be made, of obstruction against a president. And all these things that we, dis- that we thought, go back to your original question, you know, Gary Kasparov, who also has been a guest on the show, I think you know, in some ways put it best, and I think other people have said the same thing. You know, a lot of what we expect and what happens on the part of a president and our elected leaders is done on the honor system. You a know, president has never been required to be transparent about his taxes and about his income. There are issues that the president is sort of above, and if an ordinary person in government did those things, they'd be fired. The president can tweet in a way that you didn't expect someone to be able to to tweet. And so, you know, to me, I think the concern is that you've got a president who's violating all these norms, and a question that needs to be asked is, which of those things do we need to do something about going forward into the future to make into a hard law?
1: Is it actual corruption, or is it violation of norms, Donald Trump's behavior with respect to, say, his family business holdings, the hotel. Donald Trump felt he had to weigh in on the FBI's renovation across the street from the Trump Hotel. Yeah. What crosses uh, the line?
2: You know, if you're asking the question of what is criminal, what is, you know, what is a thing uh, that is a violation of federal criminal law that you would put under the umbrella of corruption? You know, that's a high hurdle. You know, we—I don't think anybody brought as many corruption cases. Uh, going back a few generations than my office did when I was there. And, and Sheldon Silver is convicted twice, and uh, Dean Skelos is convicted twice, and it, it used to be the case that it was, you had a greater likelihood of leaving the New York State Legislature by indictment than by defeat at the polls, <laughs> which I think is, is gradually changing, but you don't want to give the false impression that sometimes our success gave that it's easy to do. It's really, really hard. The burden is really, really high, and you have to have really, really strong evidence. And I'm not aware of yet that someone has put together a case that is, that is based on corruption. In other words, you know, a quid pro quo, people taking bribes to engage in official action. The Supreme Court has also made it a little bit more difficult, which is why we had to try Sheldon Silver and Dean Skelos twice by narrowing the definition after the McDonald's. If you want continuing legal education credit, you'd probably get it <laughs> today. But I, I think it's hard to do. I haven't seen it you know, proven in a crystallized way that you would need in a court of law. But that's not to say that there's not corruption with a small c going on You know, corruption of truth, corruption of process, corruption of um, institutions, corruption of democracy. I think, you know, if separate and apart from using it as a legal term of art in a criminal court, I think that everything about how Donald Trump is engaged in his job and the way he's brought people into his close-knit circle is all about corruption. He associates with corrupt people. He associates with people who are not corrupt and corrupts them. You know, who's the person who has recently a book called everything that Trump touches dies. Um, so there, there is, there is, a, there is a, a motivation to corruption, a base level of corruption, a toleration, a tolerance of corruption that permeates, I think, everything that this White House does.
0: We're looking at the Kavanaugh allegations such as they are and accumulating as we speak, and the question I had is, if there was a 15-year-old African-American kid who got caught and arrested smoking a joint, and then Got it together, went to Yale, went to Harvard Law School, had a spotless public record. Would he be disqualified from serving as a U.S. Attorney or a Supreme Court Justice because of that juvenile marijuana offense?
2: If you're asking, like, the, the straight up, I didn't know that's where you were going with the question. As a straight up technical question, I don't know the, I'm not sure. Uh, there has been sort of a change in the thinking about the use of marijuana, given legalization in various places, and the federal government is trying to decide exactly what it wants to do, and I think it would have been more liberal about it had a different person been elected. Um, for a time, any admitted, you know, known or admitted marijuana usage would have been completely um, you know, preclude you from serving in a lot of places. You know, People may have been talking about it recently because we're talking about Supreme Court nominations, but you know, there was a withdrawn nomination to the Supreme Court by Ronald Reagan of, of a different Judge Ginsburg because he smoked marijuana, but I think that was in law school. I don't know that we went as far back as you know, prior to adulthood, so I don't know if it would have been preclusive or not. But, you know, but the larger point is, you know, are there double standards? Yeah, and I think you know, some of what people are correctly talking about in the criminal justice system is are there certain enclaves of white privilege where you know, Princeton, uh, Yale, other places, communities where people have a lot of money, where a kid's smoking a joint and they get a slap on the wrist uh, or the cop walks away if there's a, a drunken incident, but in other neighborhoods that are not so privileged, there's an arrest and there's a prosecution and you get a record. And even though it's, it's technically the case that in both cases an infraction or, or a criminal violation was committed, they're not pursued equally. And I think, that, I think that's a problem.
1: How do you grade this administration's efforts on criminal justice reform? Because we hear one thing from Jared Kushner at the White House, and then from Jeff Sessions at the Justice Department, it seems to be a completely different story. Yeah.
2: Jared Kushner is working on criminal justice reform in the Middle East, right? Is that...
1: <laughs> I, can- I think China, I thought that's what Mexico, what- Canada?
2: Yeah, I don't know. And weights and measures. Um, I think... Not really. I, I think... Um, it's unfortunate. I think that there had been some progress made. And, you know, prosecutors are very conservative folks. I don't mean ideologically, but they don't, and lawyers generally, they don't go for change quickly, right? So when people start suggesting that the people's discretion, if they work in law enforcement, should be exercised a little less aggressively, that, that takes some doing on the part of prosecutors. And I think we started to have, towards the end of the Obama administration, Eric Holder put out this, uh, this memo, which is known inside the department as the very fancy name, clever, the Holder memorandum. And, um, and it basically allowed prosecutors in my office and offices around the country, which I think is a form of criminal justice reform, to, to, depending on the circumstances, not pursue a mandatory minimum charge, even if it was totally provable. So in other words, and I won't give you all the factors, but if you were a person who had not been convicted of a crime before if you're not a leader or an organizer of the criminal gang and uh, you had not engaged in any violence, you hadn't carried a gun, that prosecutors in their discretion, knowing their districts and knowing, you know, what the possibilities of deterrence were, you didn't have to charge them, which is very different from what John Ashcroft had said you had to do, with a mandatory minimum. And that person could get something of a second chance because you weren't being as harsh as the law permits, even though Congress passed these laws, which I think are outmoded many years earlier. And you know what? People didn't love that in the department. And there's lots of progressive folks in the department, but you become prosecutors, you get used to doing something a certain way. And then after time, people thought, you know what? This is not causing crime to go up. It's a good way to exercise our discretion. And they got used to it. I think we were getting to a point where both you know, liberals and conservatives, how are we going to describe those labels and define them, were reaching a consensus that certain things we were doing too harshly and too aggressive. That's one example of mandatory minimums. You know, whether people should be incarcerated for as long as they have been, whether there should be money and programs to help people, which is an issue I care about a lot and cared about when I was in the, in the, in the job, uh, the conditions of confinement. One of the proudest things that I feel uh, that we tried to accomplish was fixing Rikers Island, which is broken and terrible and a, and, a, and, a, and a real issue. And I think we were moving in a good direction. And so my concern is that when Jeff Sessions came in, and I think even a different Republican Attorney General consistent with what some people like the Koch brothers think is important, criminal justice reform, we might have made more progress. But I feel we turned the clock back a little bit. So, for example, not in every respect, but in many respects, that Holder memorandum that I described that would allow prosecutors greater discretion and not, char- not bring the full hammer down on every single person no matter what without taking account of the circumstances, that hammer now has to come down pretty much. And I think that's a step back. So the answer to your question is I don't feel great about it.
0: You know, we were talking backstage about the Judiciary Committee, which you were a staffer on for a couple of Supreme Court uh, confirmations—the same ones and, that you worked on on the other side—and on the other on the other side of it. And I, when watching um, watching this unfold between Grassley and Feinstein, Grassley's been up there for thirty-eight years. Diane Feinstein's been there for twenty-six. Yeah. So they have been colleagues in a body of one hundred people for twenty-six years. Long time. And put aside the allegations put aside partisanship and ideology just as a work product two people pushing 90 years old working together for 26 years
2: this is the outcome yeah on the how how do you think about that look it's longer than a lot of marriages that end <laughs> that end worse so, you know, so I've, I, I actually asked this question. So, I, I still have some friends and former colleagues who are on the committee, and I'll call them up like, "What's going on? What's going to happen?" They tell me, and "I'm not going to tell you." <laughs> but, I, but I ask the question: Is is what we're seeing? Because sometimes you don't know what you see. Because sometimes it's, it's, it's there's showmanship, right? And I worked for Senator Schumer on the Judiciary Committee for four and a half years, and sometimes you know, people go to the podium, and at the hearing, you know this, and they say a bunch of stuff, but then they're friends, you know, uh, and they get along, but you know, they disagree about policy and and whatever else. So I was trying to find out if they really seem as angry at each other, uh, or are they doing things for their particular constituencies? (laughs) And I was like, No, they're really angry at each other. So I think things have devolved, you know, quite a bit, and I don't, I don't quite know why. Maybe the stakes are higher. Maybe, you know, Trump makes everyone more agitated than they used to be and more angry than they used to be. You know, I, I, don't know if that's, if that's what you meant by your question.
1: What do you think about how the allegations were handled and processed? by the Senate Judiciary. Yeah, I mean,
2: they're still coming. As we walked in, there was another allegation. And So the funny thing about having been a prosecutor and then watching people conduct what they call investigations or hearings or handle allegations, if prosecutors' offices handled allegations and inquiries for the truth the way that congressional committees do, we'd all be, like, living in a hellscape. I mean, it would be, it would be a real problem. But it's, it's, a diff- it's a different... Mostly, prosecutors do everything they can not to air allegations, right? So... If Dianne Feinstein had come into, co- in, into receipt of you know, some allegations and she had been the U.S. attorney as opposed to a senator who has to operate in a political setting where there's going to be a future public airing of things, it would have been kept quiet, it would have been investigated, it would have been handled. The, the, the biggest problem I have, I think a lot of people have, with how the allegations have been handled is that seemingly for partisan reasons and power reasons, right, you always want your guy to get confirmed, and I'm sure... You know, On the other side, you want someone not to get confirmed, and so I think there's a little bit of blame everywhere where people are so intent on preventing an outcome or pursuing an outcome, and that is to put this person on the Supreme Court or to prevent this person from being on the Supreme Court. There are some people who are less concerned about figuring out the truthfulness of the allegations and the relevance of those allegations to you know, the ability to serve than they are at finding the thing that is either going to cause the person not to be able to go forward or to just dismiss the thing out of hand even if credible so that the person is installed right there's a lot of that going on and you know what i hope and and what i long for on all these things whether it's allegations against trump or last year against uh, or before the election against hillary clinton is that people take a step back and think if this was my family member or this was me and it wasn't about politics and it wasn't about a supreme court seat but serious, credible allegations were made. You know, you have to think about uh, how you would view it if you knew a participant, either the victim or the person accused. And you want a system that is fair to all those people, right? And it seems to me that it's odd and strange, separate and apart from the politics of it, that there has not been an FBI investigation, especially since you had the precedent of Anita Hill. And by the way, people keep talking about the, the Anita Hill president, that the FBI did an investigation. It, they, that was three days. They talked to some people. So it was... F- you know, sort of cursory, but it was still something. And I think not only does it do a disservice to the truth, uh, for people not to have allowed an FBI investigation to go forward with respect to these allegations, even though they were, they were a long time ago, I think it does a disservice to, I believe, to Kavanaugh himself. I mean, your colleague I was just saying, you know, it, it appears on the, my podcast this week, Nicole Wallace, you know, she and I both agree, and I think a lot of people do, that it's, it's bad for Kavanaugh. It, I, you know, sometimes it's the case that the right thing and the expedient thing even for the person in the short term who might think in the short term it's not good for them, is good for them, right? Because now you have someone who looks very much like they don't want an investigation because there's something to hide. You know, it's sort of like common sense that if you are innocent and none of these things are true, you kind of welcome it, you know, and and they're not. And so I think, you know, with respect to that aspect of how the allegations have been handled, I think it's sort of um, inexcusable.
0: The precedent here that I think is most relevant isn't Anita Hill. It's John Tower in the confirmations for a defense secretary who, that late in the process, before the vote, there were allegations of excessive drinking. And what happened is the FBI reopened the background investigation, and in in two days' time, they came back and said, he drinks a lot. <laughs> and his nomination was his nomination was withdrawn
2: right, but that drinking was in recent times as opposed to 35 years ago
0: it was it was but the issue right of course is that you go to a white house and you're asked the question on your security clearance form that have you smoked marijuana and you write down yes i wrote down yes <laughs> you would not write down yes
1: oh i wrote down yes <laughs> <laughs>
0: Now, when you're asked about it by the FBI agents, they're not looking to disqualify you for smoking marijuana. They're looking to see if you lie about smoking marijuana on the eve of going to work in a senior position in the White House. And that, to me, is the issue that's going to be laid bare here. Is he lying now about behavior back then that he's probably right to be embarrassed by?
2: You know, you'd be surprised to learn that the people who apply to be assistant use attorneys in my office, you get an FBI background check, and it's, it's, it's pretty full of vetting, and you have to say all these things that you may have done. And the questions are not just about obvious things like, have you smoked uh, marijuana or other illicit substances, but also, have you ever had a credit card problem? Have you ever had you know a, a certain kind of other infra- and The things that people will admit, that I'm, that I'm like, we don't really care about that. But, <laughs> but, but, but to me, it's very heartening because these young, idealistic lawyers don't want to be put in this position that you're describing. They tell you everything, you know, from the time that they urinated on the beach <laughs> to, to like, I, w- I had an overdraft on my Discover card when I was a sophomore at, in college. But that gives you some comfort, right, that they are telling you the truth and they're honorable and honest people. And I'm not necessarily saying this applies to Brett Kavanaugh, because I'm not an armchair psychologist, but you know, there are people in the world, in politics and in law, who want something so badly, right, they do themselves a disservice by trying to present themselves as perfect when nobody is, right? And I think one criticism, thinking about it from the, from the comms perspective, which I try not to do, but it's much in the news this week, is I don't think, you know, John McCain, right, who you have a, a you know, a close former association with, never said that he was top of his class before he entered the, the service, there is a there is a, a feeling in the in the ether now that Brett Kavanaugh, who I've met a couple of times and we have mutual friends, and I've never known him to be anything other than a nice, you know, composed, respectful guy. But there's a feeling in the ether that he tried to present himself as like the perfect boy scout, going back to the beginning of time, when it wasn't necessary to do that, and that you know, people should concede things from time to time. He had a boisterous, maybe he committed these things, and that's terrible, and those are criminal acts, but at a minimum, right, it's readily known and provable from dozens and dozens of people that he had a certain kind of lifestyle in high school and college. Maybe that's fine, maybe that's not. But, it, but it's, and I think part of the reason that people are vacating him um, and have, are having questions about his credibility and other specific matters is because he a little bit looks like that guy. Who's like wants to be the you know the 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 front of the line, and has you know since the test tube has wanted to be on the Supreme Court, and has done every and we all know people like this, and has done everything possible, which is fine, has done everything possible to clear the path to the Supreme Court, and there seems to be a little bit of lack of truth in the presentation of himself. That's all.
0: I think that's a brilliant observation.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Steve.
1: So with the Russian investigation. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, that Russian investigation. It took us
2: thirty-six minutes to get to the Russian investigation. Hey, That's how I much mean, news there is.
1: Exactly. You yeah, can't. I mean it's just too much. You have a relationship with Robert Mueller. What should we expect? Yeah, he's from
2: my him? he's my father.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I wanted to break some news <laughs> here now. He's not as pure as um, no. Uh, yeah, so I, I did not have a close relationship with him. But, you know, I was the U.S. attorney when he was the FBI director for a period of time, and we worked on cases together, and I met him a number of times. I know a lot of people who work for him much more directly. And to a person, they all revere him. What was your question about him?
1: What should we expect? Oh, look,
2: so I think you could expect what you've seen so far. A couple of things. One is, you're not going to see him speak and talk, right? Even, on, even with respect to the, some of the public indictments that have made, I think he could have been well within his rights to have announced those cases. Instead... <laughs> Uh, Rod Rosenstein did, because I think he just wants to keep his head down. The second thing is, you know, I, I say to people, and they don't believe me, these, these documents that get filed and that grand juries sign off on, the indictments and the plea agreements and others, they're really fascinating documents and they're good reads. And the reason I say that is there's very little criticism of the substance of what is in these documents. Typically, when someone gets charged, the, the, the 12 or 13 GRU uh, agency officials from Russia got charged with all sorts of bad things. The thing that people who don't like Mueller, what they say is, well, it doesn't talk about the president. It's not about the president. They don't say it's shoddy work. They don't say, well, it's kind of made up. They actually don't say that's even fake news because the meticulousness of those documents speaks for itself. And so with respect to the GRU case, I mean, literally it's minute by minute when a particular named, specified human being who's Russian, with aliases if if available, when they went into particular desktops in particular places to the minute.
1: It's a fascinating indictment,
2: everyone should read it. But the value of that, and and to answer your question, the reason why I think that's important going forward is the thing speaks for itself, and I don't think Mueller is allowing his team to engage in speculation or or pushing the envelope too much. They have it, and they have a fact, or they have an allegation, or they have a charge dead to rights. They do it up, they don't dress it up, they do it up incredibly rigorously and vigorously, and it speaks for itself. So the thing that people are looking for in the future with respect to a potential report on the full Russia investigation, I expect that to be a document if we ever see it, which I believe we would, is again going to be a tour de force of concrete, specific, detailed, uneditorialized, fact after fact after fact that's going to be very difficult to rebut. And so if they don't have it, I don't think he's going to engage in stretches, right, and make leaps between this fact and then for something else. It's going to read something like you know, things that people don't read so often but, but are, for me, good reads. You know, Inspector General reports. A good Inspector General uh, who's not necessarily prosecuting a case takes a look at what happened and says, these are the things we did. Here are the people we interviewed. Here are the documents we got. Here are the documents we didn't get. Here are the documents that were destroyed. And here are the best conclusions we can come up with, You know, chapter and verse. And so whatever product we're going to see, and maybe it's not going to be the thing that a lot of people who hope is going to be the death knell to the, to the President or the Presidency, maybe it won't have that. But what you, whatever you see, I believe is going to be rock solid, because that's how Bob Mueller operates. Why do people revere him? Talk to us about the man a little bit. So he's, a de- he's decent. Uh, he's honorable. He's honest. He works as hard as anyone you've ever seen in your life. He leads by example. Um, he cares about folks. Uh, he served with distinction. I mean, the, the thing, I was asked to write the short blurb on, on Bob Mueller for Time Magazine when they put him on, on their list of the 100 most influential people in the world. And I started the, the piece by saying, you know, Robert Muller III is a man who doesn't take deferments. What I meant by that is he's a person who had a privileged life. He went to Princeton. He was a cross player. He graduated from Princeton in the late 60s, and one of his Princeton classmates died in the Vietnam War. And you know what? Less honorable people, less courageous people, less brave people might say, well, glad, glad I didn't go there. Good thing I had these bone spurs. <laughs> he, he, on the other hand, oh, you get the reference. <laughs> the 92nd Street Y is very, very, very knowledgeable. Um, you get a good crowd here. He, he and other colleagues who graduated from Princeton said, we're gonna, now we're going to serve, because that's what you do. So he always goes into battle. He had, you know, i give you another example of his dedication to service above ego, because a lot of people who are great public servants and do great things. And they also have egos, and that's okay, because it can fuel ambition. But Robert Mueller had had, I think, two really high, big deal jobs, Senate-confirmed jobs. And I'm forgetting the order a little bit. I think he had been the assistant attorney general for, uh, for the criminal division, and he'd also been a U.S. attorney uh, in Boston and in San Francisco. And then he goes to private practice, and he's like, well, this kind of sucks, because it's not, it's not public service of the kind that he had always been drawn to, whether in the military or in civilian life. And he decides... You know, there's been a high, there's a high crime problem in Washington, D.C. at the time. And he call, and I think it was Eric Holder was the U.S. attorney in D.C. at the time. He's like, you know, can I come back, even though he'd been so high-ranking, and I'll just be a guy in the line, just like try homicide cases. And he went back to the Justice Department, to a local U.S. attorney's office, and he tried homicide cases because that's what you do. I think that speaks volumes about
1: him. I've been I've been really interested to watch Mike Flynn as this process evolves. And recently, his sentencing date, I think, is now set for the end of December. Yeah. What's at stake for Mike Flynn?
2: So that's a good question. You know, I don't know. I, there were all these theories about what his plea deal signified. And some people, I think, speculated because he didn't plead guilty to that much, right, false statements, which don't carry the, the, the biggest penalty in the world. and. Some people thought that must mean he has a lot of information he gave up. He's going to be testifying in a number of cases going forward against people we don't yet know who will be indicted, including issues relating to Russia, perhaps Turkey, and some other things. I wasn't so sure about that. I feel less sure about that now, because if they've agreed... and What it means when someone, when someone who's a cooperating person with the government, when the government agrees to let that person be sentenced, almost always, although I, I caution always because this is a special kind of case that we've never seen before, but almost always, that means that person's usefulness uh, is, is over. It also likely means that there's no further need to have that person testify. Now, the idea that he is cooperating in a particular way to bring about the charging and arrest of some other person at whose trial he might have to testify seems hugely unlikely given that they're acceding to his being sentenced in December. So... For him, I don't know exactly what it means. For the Mueller investigation, to me, it suggests, don't know for sure, but it suggests um, that he is not going to be the proximate cause of other big-deal prosecutions in connection with the special counsel's case.
0: What did you make of the op-ed in the New York Times, which feels like it occurred nine and a half years ago, <laughs> um, by the anonymous administration official? Who wrote that? Do you know? Who wrote it? I thought you knew. I think seriously. I have to say, I just not to digress. I, I was struck <laughs> by your startling lack of compassion for bone spurs, a
2: serious <laughs> medical condition. It depends on who has them, uh, um. and how real they are. <laughs> um, it's about the truth, Steve. Uh, look, so yeah, I don't. I don't. I, so I don't. I don't love that anonymous person. Right? I don't. I don't love the idea uh, that this person. In, in a semi-self-aggrandizing way uh, and from you know the, the, the remove of anonymity is saying all these things. I understand the point. Um, I, I guess it might make a difference if I knew how high up the person was and I might have a different view, but probably not. I, I'm losing patience with the proposition that these not-anonymous people, these people we know based on reporting uh, are very concerned about the president and think that they need to stay in their jobs to present, to, pr- to protect the country from the president you know, at first that seems kind of noble. Well, thank God, thank God they're there. But I'm growing very tired of them because there are other ways also in the longer term to cause something better to happen. And, for example, it would be nice if there are three such people and if Mattis is one of them, great, and if, you know, Kelly is one of them, great. You actually speak your mind and you resign. You resign noisily and you tell the public what's at stake And maybe that has the, maybe not, but maybe it has the effect of curbing the president. Maybe it has the effect of letting other people do the same thing. And I think if you had a procession of people who cared about the country, who cared about transparency, who cared about their own reputations in a particular way, right, their reputations for doing the right thing, and not this sort of quiet, secret, you know, conceited martyrdom, which I worry about a little bit. And there was a train of people who leave the White House and say, the country is at risk. We have a problem. He's not fit. He has the attention span of a fifth grader and all the other things that people say, that might actually have some effect. And I'd, I'd prefer to see that than the occasional anonymous op-ed in the New York Times. From a,
0: from, a, from, a, from a law enforcement perspective, thinking about the southern border, I'm struck by the fact that there appears to be nobody in federal law enforcement who, when they are ordered to separate a six month old baby that is breastfeeding from its mom, says, You want me to do what? Yeah. Go F yourself. Yeah. I'm not doing that. That's a great point. Re- resignations. It seems to me it's in a legal order, it's in a moral order. Why isn't law enforcement and those agencies anybody in them?
2: responding in that way that's a great question i don't know and i think they should my shortest answer of the evening Mm -hmm.
1: well let's take a few audience questions the one started uh for you steve the question is who is in the white house to speak truth to power
0: there's nobody Um, (laughs) look i you know i i think that people fall into three broad categories on this Um, I do think there are a couple of people that are necessary to defend the country and to protect, for example, the armed forces from Trump, and that would be Jim Mattis. And I think there would be global panic if you saw him step down. Now, most of the people in there are accomplices. They're helping him because they like what he's doing. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is into it. Now, most of the people right, probably fall into a category where they are careerists. And these are the people that I have a particular contempt for, and I think it is shared by Preet. And their proposition will someday be, well, Donald who? No, no, no. I was there fighting him all the way. So their virtue in their mind is this. Well, I like my title. I like my motorcade. I like my security detail. I like flying around on Air Force One. I don't really like him that much personally, but I like the power of my job. And that, I think, is contemptible. And you know, it is those people that you know, one day will all be out with a revisionist history of this, of this period of time. And I think that they should be uh, held to account.
1: Another question, and I think this is for everyone. When the Trump saga finally comes to an end, do you think we can ever get back to the middle? Do you think it's possible to bridge the divide and get back to civility?
2: I hope so. Look, I, I think, um, yes, I, the, I think the question is how long will it take? Uh, and if you believe, and you know more about politics than I do, Steve, if you believe that presidential elections are often referendums on the thing that just happened, right, and so Donald Trump was a reaction in part to Obama, and you look for something that's sort of different and change, it's always change, but change from the, the thing you just had, that the next time we're in a go-around on this, we'd elect someone uh, who... Has you know the opposite qualities in many ways that Donald Trump has, but I think it's going to take a long period of healing and uh, and making up.
0: You know I think about this question from the perspective of what will they write 50 years from now about this moment in time and what, what comes after it. And I have a point of view that there is nothing wrong in America that cannot be fixed by what's right in the country. But I think the choice ahead for us as a country is renewal. Or decline and we should make no mistake about it that the country is on a path of decline in many many ways and
2: not economic m- decline is it
0: forty two percent of the country doesn't have four hundred dollars of cash available for emergency I mean there are more there are more payday lenders in this country than there are Starbucks. And there are almost more payday lenders than there are Starbucks and McDonald's combined. And there are a shit ton of Starbucks and McDonald's <laughs> in in America. So I, I think that there's a crisis in capitalism. You know, I think historically, if you understand FDR's presidency, I would have a point of view that he saved free market American capitalism uh, from its excesses and prevented the rise of a totalitarian movement uh, or an authoritarian m- m- movement in that, in that moment in history. Um, the economic dislocation, I think, is profoundly important in terms of understanding our political instability, but the regression of democracy all over the world is a, is a real thing. And I think that the next presidential election is, is likely to be the most significant in the country uh, since the election of 1864 which really decided whether we were going to continue to be a country or not.
2: So so how long is it going to take?
0: I think what has always been true, almost providentially, in the country is that it has produced the right leaders in the right moments, unexpectedly. Harry Truman, a failed haberdasher from Independence, Missouri, a plain-spoken man uh, who you wouldn't have high expectations of coming out of a very corrupt Democratic machine, the Pendergrass machine in Kansas City. Ulysses Grant was selling firewood on a street corner in 1859, down and out on his luck. Dwight Eisenhower was a colonel in the Army who hadn't been promoted in 13 years in 1940. And so the moment of crisis in the country historically in 1856 on the edge of the Civil War We had one of the worst presidents, and probably, if Trump is the worst president in American history, and I believe he is, the second worst is probably Buchanan in 1856. But it took a Buchanan for us to get a Lincoln. And the question is, and I always think about Lincoln in this story, is William Tecumseh Sherman was highly skeptical of Lincoln when he was elected. And he said, the country's doomed. We've elected a backwoods barbarian. He's uneducated. Is no prospects to deal with the, with the crisis in front of us. And then he was asked to comment about Lincoln after his death. And uh, he had seen him with Grant a week before. And he said, I've met all the great men of the world. I've met the kings and the emperors and the queens and the industrialists. But I never met a man who possessed more of the qualities of greatness and goodness than Abraham Lincoln. And so I believe, right, that the presidency amplifies character, Donald Trump is who Donald Trump is, and all of his flaws and all of his character are magnified by his office. But I do believe that there are leaders out there who possess those qualities of greatness and goodness, and who have it in their heart, the concept that you can't love your country if you hate half the people in it, and that the mission of the next president is to bring about a season of reconciliation, because at the end of the day, we're in it together. And you can't succeed as a country when everybody's fighting each other with the anger that we see today. So I, I'm hopeful but also alarmed.
1: Well, this is a good segue to the next question for you. Steve, are you gonna help Democrats campaigns in 2020 to get Republicans out of office? I just
0: I just did I just I guess I was the headliner for my first ever fundraising event for a Democratic congressional candidate on the Upper East Side. And
1: times are a-changing.
0: The times, they are a-changing. But yeah, listen, I, this is the most important midterm election in American history, period, full stop. Trumpism must be repudiated. And if it is not, if it is is validated in this election, if there is not a check uh, put on this guy, we're going to be down the road to living in a different country uh, than the one we grew up in. It is essential that there be a check. Now, that doesn't mean um, that we're going to get better politics out of it. We have a debate in this country that the choice devolves to dumb and dumber. And think about immigration. Our politics has presented a choice where, on the one hand, we can seize little babies from their parents at the border and put them into internment camps. And on the other hand, we can have no immigration enforcement at all. And I'm thinking that between the two, maybe somewhere in the middle, we can find some agreement. And so our politics, on issue after issue, where 80% of the American people just basically conceptually agree, because Americans are endowed mostly, most of us, I think, with some level of common sense, we have, a, we have the political parties are pushing any commonsensical solution out of... Out of bounds, and it's it's a it's a tragedy because we have some problems we need to fix in the country.
1: So, speaking of twenty twenty, <laughs> are you going to run for the Democratic nomination? Yeah.
2: Well, it, you, you'd have to repeal a part of the Constitution. I was I was bo- I was born in India. So mostly, I'm just trying not to get deported at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, if I can stay in the country. I'm I'm good. I'm in I'm in good shape. Who is going to be the person? Can
1: we I who, who's, who's, as who's of this now, Abraham Lincoln
2: savior figure that you're describing?
1: As of now it seems like it's shaping up to be 2016 for the Democrats and a food fight of 20 candidates fighting for resources, dividing the party. As of now, it's too early, but I would just say that there is no savior figure who has become a parent, except though perhaps there's a certain senator candidate in Texas who has quite a spark. And you, I know you have some thoughts on that too, Ted Cruz. I, no. <laughs> I think
0: I think you got to I think you got to think about this like like uh, like sports, right? That there's brackets and there's different like nfc east west and south right and so so you have the senator bracket and you have Bernie Sanders, Kristen Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, uh, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, I'm um, missing someone in there and so i have a i have a, a, a very senior democrat uh, in the state of california who supported a single payer proposal out there that cost 450 billion dollars a year and the state budget all in in the state of California is $145 billion a year. And so what I said to him is explain to me like I'm a third grader why that lie is different than Trump saying we're going to build a wall that Mexico's going to pay for it. I said, As a matter of political strategy if you post up dishonest progressivism against Trumpism it's not possible to win a dishonesty contest with Donald Trump. He wins every time. <laughs> so, so, So we have that bracket and that bracket is Pulling to the left, we have a break glass bracket in the middle that's forming. That's Biden. It's Bloomberg. It's John Kerry. It's seventy-eight years old. It's <laughs> you, you, you know us. See, so you kind of
1: ages tonight. Right? You, don't, yeah. you don't.
0: not You know us. You. We're not gonna. We're not gonna start World War Three. You put us in there. It's an emergency. And then you have a new bracket, which is I think Eric Garcetti, Mitch Landrew possibly the Governor of Montana Bullock, um, John Hickenlooper from Colorado, maybe the Governor um, of Washington State, Jay Inslee, but it's going to be more west, it's going to be young. You have two candidates, Seth Moulton, 40 years old, a uh, Congressman from Massachusetts, uh, Marine Corps officer who did five combat tours, Tim Ryan uh, from Youngstown, Ohio, the uh, nemesis in the House conference of Nancy Pelosi, someone who's pushing generational change, so it's going to be an enormous field.
2: What about outside of and, politics?
0: And, and Michael Avenatti will, <laughs> will will be a candidate. And I and I and I'll and I'll say Look, this. I don't about laugh it. anymore. I don't laugh I don't, anymore. I'll, I'll, I'm not laughing. I'll say this about Michael Michael Avenatti is: you get close to the New Hampshire primary, and as Democratic voters are looking, it's a lot like American Idol. It's going basically be like this. We gonna we gonna keep that guy around for another week. Yeah, we're gonna keep that guy around for another week, all right? And so, so we're gonna we're gonna see a we're gonna see a field that's as big as the Republican field was in 2016. They're not all gonna fit on the debate stage, and I think it's as open as 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 any race could conceivably be.
1: Well, I think this might be a good final question.
0: What is your favorite Bruce Springsteen album, please? <laughs> And why?
2: Um, you know, so I, I'll, I like them all. Um,
1: now that's a political answer.
2: Yeah, but my, 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 my favorite song is Thunder Road, which is not, you know, it's, it sort of seems passe to talk about a popular album that everyone knows. You're supposed to, if you're a Springsteen fan or you're, you know, an Elvis Costello fan or whatever group you're a fan of, you're supposed to pick something obscure to show, like how much you know. I like that stuff, but, you know, the old stuff weren't Run, But, but I'll, I'll say just for purposes of this question, I think an underrated album, maybe it's not that underrated, is The Rising, which you know, I'll never forget being at a concert in, uh, in New Jersey, in the Meadowlands, in 2000, I think the album came out in 2002, or the middle or end of 2002, it was right after 9-11. And there were all these people in the audience uh, who were there for the classics and the songs that they knew, and they hadn't really listened to the new album. Um, and I had listened to it a lot, because it was very evocative of things that happened. On 9-11, which was still very raw and fresh. And I saw these young guys who talked all the way through the songs from The Rising, including Into the Fire and, and songs like that that are about you know difficult things. Uh, and I was disappointed in them and wondered why. that. When, it's sort of like when you go to you go see bands play and they had their new album, they got to play a lot of songs from the new album. The new album's not very good. But then you fast forward a few years and some of the songs from The Rising are sort of Springsteen anthems that people have come to love and appreciate and like but they didn't in 2002 and so I think the strength of that album over time has been extraordinary
0: When you said all of them it reminded me of Donald Trump's single greatest answer on the question of what was his favorite Bible verse and (laughs) and, and of course
2: he replied all of them I love all of them I, I, I thought his single greatest answer was, and it was like to the point, and it's, it's gross to think about, but with respect to the, this rumored thing that exists somewhere, the President of the United States of America said, I'm a germaphobe. <laughs> okay, your turn, Steve. And, <laughs> and,
0: and with that, we will all sleep soundly tonight.
1: Thanks so much everyone for coming out. Thank
0: that you. was fun. Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.